Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Singularity One-on-One. Singularity One-on-One is a regular podcast feature of Singularity Weblog, where you can go and listen to it or download it in full. Today, my guest on the show is Callum Chase. Callum Chase is a former business executive with over 30 years of experience. He's also a contributor to Singularity Weblog, as well as a blogger in his own right. And finally, and most recently, he is the author of a very interesting, um, I would say, rather philosophical novel about artificial uh, uh, science fiction novel that is about artificial intelligence. So, uh, Callum Chase, welcome to Singularity One on One. Hi, Nick. It's a pleasure to be here. Fantastic. I've been looking forward to this for a while. Um, so, let me begin our conversation by asking you. What's the best way to introduce yourself to, to an audience that may not be familiar with your previous work before? I think, I think the introduction you just gave was pretty good. I'm a retired businessman, um, still involved in business in some small ways, uh, but now I'm a novelist and a blogger about mainly artificial intelligence, but also about uh, future technology, the exponential future technology in general. So how does a businessman who spent 30 years in business suddenly starts getting interested in issues such as artificial intelligence, the technological singularity, and then decide to go off on a tangent to write a science fiction novel? Yeah, good question. Um, it wasn't sudden. Uh, as a boy, I read a lot of science fiction, probably too much. Uh, but I found that to be useful later when I went to university. I studied philosophy. And when I was at university, I discovered that uh, science fiction is actually philosophy in fancy dress, by which I mean that um, science fiction gives you worlds, possible worlds, and possible worlds are thought experiments, and thought experiments are at the heart of philosophy. Philosophy asks questions like, what is truth? What is meaning? What is belief? What is personal identity? And a great way to explore the idea of what personal identity is, is to imagine a world in which one person can overnight become two people. And they're both the same. So either the same person or has one person died and two new people arrived. And that's the kind of um, thing that science fiction loves to play around with. And it's the kind of thing that philosophy deals with. When I left college, uh, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I went into business um, pretty much by accident, really enjoyed the 30 years I spent doing it. Um, then in the year 1999, I was sitting outside Yahoo's office in Palo Alto, finishing off a book I'd been recommended by this chap called Ray Kurzweil. <laughs> uh, I think you may have heard of him. And uh, it was, Are We Spiritual Machines? I think that was the book. And something went pop. And, you know, my mind exploded. Now, I have issues with some of Ray's work, and I don't think a lot of people do, but he has probably done more than anybody else to alert people to the incredible possibilities created by exponential technological development. And I thought this stuff about um, artificial general intelligence, uh, which wasn't called that then, uh, and about mind uploading, this is really important and more people should be thinking about this. So from then, I started talking to everybody I met about, um, about AI and things. And, and frankly, for a long time, most people thought I was crazy. I wrote a book back then. Um, I wrote what was actually the first version of the book I've just published. It was dreadful really bad. I put it away and didn't think about it until I retired about three years ago. And my, um, my, my partner, Julia, said, you better do something useful with your time. I'm not just having you sitting around the house and playing golf. Um, why don't you dust off that old book you wrote and uh, you know, have another go at it? Because you still think the ideas are fascinating. So I did. And in the process of writing it, I, I relearned a lot of stuff and I learned a lot of new stuff. Uh, and I'm still as enthralled by the idea as I was. So that's a long way of saying it isn't new. Um, I didn't have the time to write the book properly until I retired. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I have to admit, The Age of Spiritual Machines is my least favorite book of, of Ray Kurzweil's, though. I mean, I, I've read most of his books, and that one is, for some reason, I don't know, it just, it's the one that least connected with me for some reason. Uh, but but it's interesting how a philosophy major like you ends up in business for 30 years and then ends up 
in artificial intelligence, science fiction kind of realm. So that's quite a journey. It's like big turns there. Would you would you care to say something about that? How is that? How are you able to adapt intellectually and otherwise to those changes? Oh, I think these days we all have to be very flexible. Uh, my career was never planned. You know, even, even when I did have five-year plans, they never, they never came about. I'm, I'm a great believer that you should have plans. And I always tell my, my clients, I still chair and mentor uh, half a dozen companies and uh, I, I help people out. And I always say to people, you know, if you don't, um, if, if you fail to plan, then you're planning to fail. It's, you know, it's an old cliche, but I think it's true. But of course, the plans never work out the way you expect. Forecast and plans never work out. So my career wasn't planned, um, but in a sense, maybe I've ended up where I should have been. Who knows? Um, life is often a strange journey. I'm still enjoying what I'm doing, enjoying it more than ever. So I think that's kind of like, that has a lot to do with it. As long as you're prepared to follow the journey and enjoy yourself on, uh, along the way, uh, you don't mind the turns, actually. And, and quite often, they make things even more interesting. And, and and more kind of motivating to keep going because you don't know what's behind the next corner. Yeah, that, that's very true. Uh, but going back to your planning uh, kind of point, uh, you know, I, I used to do lots of, for example, uh, armed conflict, political science, international relations uh, studies. And that kind of reminded me to Napoleon, who was meticulous when it came to planning, but uh, who notably said that uh, as as soon as the first shot gets fired, all plans go out the window. So so he was very kind of insanely obsessive about preparing and planning as much as possible, while keenly aware that as soon as you get contact with the the opponent, then you know <laughs> things yeah. started developing on their own. Yeah, that's right. The, the the best laid battle plans don't survive first contact with the enemy, but but bits of it do. You know. Um, Little, I suppose, what you might call subroutines of your plan may survive. And, you know, some parts of your cavalry may uh, be able to carry out part of the plan that you practiced with them. And, and it's the same in sport and it's the same in business. It's probably the same in every, in every walk of, in every area of life. Um, so, you know, preparation is, is always a good idea. The, the other great military saying uh, that you'll know as a former military man is that time spent on reconnaissance is never wasted. Absolutely. So connecting that to our kind of topic of, of, of today, can we plan for the singularity and what's the best way to do that if the answer is yes? Well, can we plan for the singularity? To an extent, yes. We would be very well advised to try to understand what it is and how it might happen. Um, but, let, but let's, you have to go back a bit, and, and you'll have done this many times, as to, 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 to ask a question, you know, what, what do you mean by singularity? There's hundreds of different, well, maybe not hundreds, tens of different meanings for it. But let's stick on what I think is probably the central one, which is uh, an, an intelligence explosion. Um, so an artificial general intelligence is created, it becomes an artificial superintelligence, and unaugmented humans are then unable to follow what it does and what it does to the world. Can we plan for that? Well, to some extent, by definition, no, because it's going to quickly become perhaps millions of times cleverer than us. I'm not talking about the difference between Einstein and Russell Brand. I'm talking about the difference between Einstein and an ant. Can you plan for you know, what, that, what that world will be like? Hard to do. But actually, if you don't, um, the consequences could be very grim. And I'm sure we'll come to that. You know, as, as Stephen Hawking rightly said, um, the arrival of, of a strong artificial intelligence, an artificial general intelligence, will be either the best or the worst thing ever to happen to humanity. Sadly, he's often been thought of as having said it was just the worst thing, whereas actually he was saying it could be the best thing as well. So because it's such an important event, we'd be mad not to try to plan for it and not to try to uh, shape it, try to make it the most advantageous development for humans that it can be. Uh, I like the fact that you're kind of embracing the sort of the classic IJ good definition of the singularity, but let me let me push you a little bit on that point because by definition, and that's more kind of leaning towards the other definition, which is the event horizon definition of the singularity, the singularity is kind of 
something beyond which we cannot model the future. We cannot see. It's a black hole. And as you gave the example, uh, you know, between an ant and an Einstein. So how can an ant prepare for an Einstein or plan for? If we are the ants and the AI would be Einstein and increasingly getting smarter Einstein, many Einsteins very quickly, perhaps, then like, what's the hope of planning? What can an ant do for, for an Einstein? Well, the good news is we're not ants. Um, yeah, I think the metaphor, you can, you can overstretch it at, at that point. Um, we are actually rather a smart little mammal. You think that what humans have achieved in the last, particularly the last three or 400 years, where we can understand, you know, with reasonably high degree of confidence, more or less how this incredibly large and incredibly complicated universe works. We're beginning to get to grips with the most complicated object we know of in it, which is our own brains. Um, we, are, we are a pretty smart um, little, little organism. And maybe we can. Maybe we can work out how to solve the two great problems which Nick Bostrom in his excellent book, Superintelligence, which I'm sure all of your listeners have, have and your viewers have read, uh, Superintelligence. Um, the two great problems, which are the, uh, the, the motivation problem, how do, you con how do you program the AGI to be human-friendly before it arrives, and or, and or the control problem, which is how do you uh, make it act in a friendly way towards us after it arrives. Those two problems can, uh, and I must admit, you know, at times to me, they've seemed completely insuperable. You know, how on earth do you influence a being which is a million times smarter than you? But we've done incredible things before. You know, we've learned how to fly. We've put a man on the moon within 10 years of really trying. Uh, we understand an awful lot more about the universe than I often think is reasonable for us to understand. So perhaps we can solve this problem. Chances are we've got a few decades to do it in. So a few decades of our brightest minds working on it, maybe we can crack it. And actually, I think that's probably the most important thing uh, that, that all of us who are interested in this subject should be saying to everybody else out there, wake up, you know, take seriously the proposition that this might happen in decades, and let's, let's solve the problem. Is that where you see your function or the, the value that you're providing in, in kind of sparking that conversation or furthering it? Yeah. Uh, it would be incredibly grandiose of me to think that I'll make anything like a substantive contribution to it, but, you know, we should all try um, 15 years ago, when I first started thinking about this, uh, I was the only person I knew who was interested in it, and most people I talked to thought I was completely batshit crazy. Um, there's been a remarkable sea change. It's been happening gradually, and I think your podcasts have done a huge amount to educate a lot of people, um, and, and importantly, to bring a lot of the good thinking about it, make it more available. Uh, I, I've certainly, I think I've listened to all your, all your podcasts. I've, confess I'd mostly listen to them rather than watch them, but uh, I think I've listened to them all, and, and I find them tremendously useful. Um, the sea change really happened, I think, when, when Bostrom published his book, because clearly Hawking, Musk, Gates, more recently Wozniak, read it, and they all started saying things publicly, which made people sit up and pay attention. And now, uh, the good old BBC, which is a pretty, um, established, a pretty establishment organization, uh, runs pieces on it without sneering. So, you know, it's becoming mainstream, which is great. That, that needs to happen. Uh, if, my book, uh, if my book, Pandora's Brain, is able to help a few people get up to speed with what all the issues are in a way that they don't find painful, uh, then, then it's done a good job. Mm -hmm. So, okay, so tell us a little bit about your book then. What is it about? Other than we are aware that it's about the singularity, but a little bit more into the details. Sure, sure. So it's about a young man uh, who is a Cambridge undergraduate. He's studying maths. So he's completely unlike me, before you ask, because uh, I... You're Oxford, of course. Yeah, absolutely. So you don't get any more <laughs> different than that. <laughs> and, and I did philosophy, uh, which is your friend always likes to tell you is a bullshit subject, uh, whereas, he, whereas the hero Matt is doing a, a real subject, math, math, mathematics. Um, so he's a, he's a, uh, a student at Cambridge, and um, he discovers that his father, who recently died, was working on a project which uh, was, was taking him to being able to understand the brain uh, in, in some interesting new ways. Matt had, you know, he knew his dad was a neuroscientist, but he didn't know exactly what he did. Um, 
So he then decides, right, I'm, I'm going to have a career in neuroscience. He starts putting feelers out to people in that field. And quicker than he expected, he meets uh, a very impressive uh, a very impressive guy who invites him to dinner, uh, talks to him about artificial general intelligence and the fact that we might get there soon, and says he'd like to hire Matt. So Matt's thinking, wow, this is great. You know, I'm, I'm, on, I'm on a roll here. Uh, things don't turn out quite as he expected, and I don't want to, uh, to offer up too many plot spoilers, but soon after he meets uh, Ivan, the, that, that, that uh, neuroscientist, um, his adventure starts, and it's quite a roller coaster of an adventure. He has um, lots of dramatic events happen to him, and during the course of all that, uh, he explores both the possible upside and the possible downside of of artificial general intelligence. I have to say that Ivan the Terrible uh, is kind of like one of my favorite characters, actually, in your book. Yeah, I'm I'm glad that you liked Ivan. He was the most fun character to write. Uh, this is the first time I've written a novel, at least the first time I've written what I hope is a half-decent novel. And I've, one of the many things I've discovered in the process is that writing baddies is, is the most fun, particularly when they're not all bad. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I think it's important to, uh, to avoid the sort of Manichaean worldview in which there are good guys and bad guys. We are all a mixture of good and bad. You know, we, we all know that in everyday life. So Ivan is actually a real altruist. You know, he wants the best for humanity. Um, but he's got a very uh, clear view of what he thinks should happen, and he's utterly ruthless. He will not be deterred or, or distracted from his goal. And he, he has a very strong view that, the, that no military, and well, not the US military, but certainly not any other military either, should be the first organization to create an artificial general intelligence. He's determined to stop that happening. So he does some pretty outrageous and appalling things to stop that, to stop that happening. And that's what makes him a baddie. So he was great fun to write. So basically, it's the means that you have a, we have a problem with, which kind of cast him as the negative character. But his goal is a noble one, isn't it? It is. Yeah, yeah. He, he wants to make sure that AI is friendly, the first AI is friendly. So let's see how we can connect that to the title of the book then. Why call your novel Pandora's Brain? Because, I mean, tell us about that, the association between your title and the traditional Greek mythology. Sure, sure. So Ivan himself explains it um, when, when he first meets Matt, the, the hero of the book. Um, the, the Greek myth is that Zeus, who was a very mischievous god, um, wanted to punish humans for having accepted the gift of fire. Zeus thought that the gift of fire was a terrible thing for one of his fellow gods, Prometheus, to have given humans. Uh, he, he punished Prometheus by chaining him to a rock and having an eagle peck out his liver every day. The liver would regrow overnight and the eagle would come back and do it again. So that's a pretty grim punishment for Prometheus. Um, humans, his punishment for them was he gave, I think it was his, I think it was Prometheus's brother, he gave Prometheus's brother uh, the first woman. He created the first woman and gave her to Prometheus's brother as a wife. And he gave Pandora, the woman, a jar. We, we usually say it as box, but actually it was a jar full of uh, something, but he didn't say what. And he said, don't ever open the jar. Now, of course, Zeus knew humans are curious and his newly made female human was the most curious of all. So he knew that, of course, the first thing she would do is open the jar and she did. And what Zeus had done had put in it all the evils in the world. So all the evils flew out of the jar, but also something very important flew out the jar, which was hope. So Pandora's jar or Pandora's box uh, is, is something out of which come, it's the root of all evil, but also the root of all possible good. Uh, so hence Pandora's brain. If we create an AGI, it could be the root of great evil or it could be the root of great good. Our role is to make sure that it's great good. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know if hope is a great good. I mean, generally speaking, the contents are more associated with like disease and all kinds of other negative things and pestilence and I don't know what else. But uh, hmm. okay, so let's see what would be that great good with respect to AGI, for example, in, in your view. Well, the the great good. 
other than hope? Yeah, hope, hope, well, hope is, hope is more important than you might think. Um, there's a lot of work going on in education at the moment about what helps kids study well and learn well. And um, it, it turns out that even more important than intelligence is grit and determination and a positive, hopeful outlook. And it really is true. I mean, it's a, it's a terrible old cliche, but it's really true that, you know, um, if you have a sunny disposition, you'll probably have a, be have a better life. Um, you'll be able to achieve more because you think you can achieve more and other people like you better. And it, and it becomes a very positive, self-reinforcing -re cycle. So, you know, I, I don't think we should um, downplay the importance of hope. But so what, what's the most important role of it with regard to AGI? Actually, when you start thinking about the terrible things that could happen with an unfriendly AGI, and then they really are awful. You know, the Terminator scenario is a soft one. It could be much worse. Um, you need hope. You need hope to get beyond that and not, not to just despair and say, crikey, we're going to get AGI probably in maybe centuries, but quite possibly in decades. There's nothing we can do to solve either the motivation problem or the control problem. So let's give up. You know, it's all in the lap of the gods. We've already rolled the dice. We can't stop it um, and we can't influence it. Lie on our backs with our hands and feet waving in the air. That's not very constructive. I think, um, as, as Bostrom said at the end of his book, we need to throw, in the, in, in the face of this unnatural problem, we need to throw all of our best human resources at it. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's talk a little bit about the timeline then, because you keep saying that it's probably decades, but it could be centuries. How do you personally see that timeline? I don't have a crystal ball and neither does anybody else. It's a fascinating debate. I mean, first of all, you've got to be confident that it will happen at all. And there are some people who think it won't. Uh, I am very struck by the observation that, that we with our brains are the existence proof that you can organize ordinary matter, chemi uh, carbon, silicon, etc., into a thinking machine. So if, if, if a very slow, inefficient process, not random, but, um, very time-consuming process like evolution can do it, then we can do it too with our much quicker, much more efficient process of science. How long will it take? Well, I always assumed that it would take thousands of years. As, as a science fiction reader, I always assumed it would happen, but I thought it would be thousands of years away. And that's what Kurzweil made me reconsider, the idea that it might happen in my lifetime. Um, Bostrom, as you know, did a, did a meta-survey in which half the uh, experts, I think it was about 160 experts that his, whose opinions he, he corralled, half of them thought it would happen by 2050. 90% uh, of them thought it would happen by the end of the century. And Bostrom says he thinks that 2050 might be a little bit premature. And frankly, that man has a brain the size of a planet. I think I'll defer to him. It seems, <laughs> it seems his guess seems a reasonable one to me. Um, I think the real issue is whether it's, you know, if, it, if you assume it's going to happen at all, I think the real issue is, is it centuries? In which case, we don't really need to worry about it too much because in centuries from now, our understanding of physics, maths, and even philosophy, probably not philosophy, will, will, have, <laughs> will, will have advanced enormously. I'm sure, I'm sure in 100 years, we'll still be debating the same things as the, as the ancient Greek that you're named after uh, we're, we're debating. Um, but, you know, we, we, we will have advanced a great deal, so we probably don't need to worry about it now. But if, it, if it's going to happen in decades, I think we really should worry about it now because it will take us decades to solve it. Um, so it seems plausible, by no means certain, that it might happen in decades, and therefore we need to throw some very uh, major resources at it. Now, it's interesting that recently, I suppose as, as a backlash to particularly to Elon Musk's comments, there's been quite a lot of the, what I call the grandees of deep learning, particularly, have lined up to say, you know, this is rubbish. It's not going to happen for centuries if even you know maybe thousands of years so you've got Jan LeCun at Facebook you've got Andrew Ng who was at Google and is now at Baidu you've got uh, Christoph Koch who uh, is at the Paul Allen Center all saying you know we don't need to worry about this I find it quite interesting that Demis Hassabis of DeepMind which was famously acquired by Google recently kind of joined their ranks but didn't quite do it because he said decades he said we didn't don't need to worry about it yet because it's decades away I don't, want, I don't want to misrepresent him, and I may be being unfair, but that seemed to me like he was kind of letting the cat out of the bag. Because like I say, if it's only decades away, we should work on it. We should work on it now. And I don't know what, sorry, I, I don't know what the solution is or what direction the solution will be found in. 
frankly, I don't consider myself bright enough to be in that group of people who will solve it. Uh, but we need those very bright people to be working on it. Mm -hmm. And and what's the kind of putting aside the timeline issue for a second? What's the probability it will be a soft takeoff versus a hard takeoff? I mean, your book is pretty hard takeoff, I think. Yeah. So why why write that kind of a scenario? Is it because you think it's the more likely one, or is it because it's just more useful for the purposes of writing science fiction? Both. Okay. Both. Yeah. I mean, to, to write a book which happened, where, where sort of, in a sense, the main event happened over decades would be pretty tough. Um, but I also think it is the most, uh, a, a fast takeoff is the most likely scenario. Maybe not hours, maybe not hours, but days or months at, at most. You know, I, I don't know. A lot of smart people think it will be a slow takeoff. I know that, um, you know, Ramaz Nam, for instance, believes it will be a, a slow takeoff. And, and who knows, they might, they might be right. But it seems to me that there are such uh, efficient ways to speed up an artificial general intelligence. You know, to oversimplify, you can expand it by giving it extra capacity. Uh, you can improve the, uh, the software. You can improve the, 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 um, the organization of the architecture of the thing. And, and you can speed it up. Um, you, can, you can make the messages go faster. So given those, those possibilities, and given that you're going to start off with, with a machine which is a bit smarter than us already, it then makes its successor, which is a bit smarter, and so on and so on, you, know, you might have an exponential increase with a very short doubling period leading to a, a very fast takeoff. It seems to me at least plausible, and, and my hunch is it's the most likely. Yeah, I, I have to admit, I myself form, fall more into the soft takeoff school uh, also. And Ramez is actually a bigger pessimist than me. He's kind of a lot more skeptical on the whole artificial intelligence, artificial general intelligence, you know, in principle. So uh, he's even further down the road. But uh, so, so let, me, let me ask you this then. What are our chances of survival in the context of AGI, be it slow or a hard takeoff? Well, I rather like Nick Bostrom's comment that um, optimism and pessimism are both simply forms of bias, so we should try to avoid them. Absolutely. That said, I think I am probably an optimist. Like I say, I think we're a pretty smart species. I think we've achieved great things. And faced with our biggest existential challenge, once we all, or at least you know, a large number of us finally get around, get around to, uh, to, to seeing it that way, the intellectual resources we'll be able to apply to it, I think, will be formidable. So I'm reasonably optimistic that we can survive. And indeed, you know, if we get a friendly AI, the, uh, the outcome for humanity can, can be absolutely wonderful. Uh, I'm, I'm not as optimistic as I sense that Ray Kurzweil is, for instance. I, don't, you know, I think that the, the, possi the possible downside is serious. So I'd say, you know, if you, if you, if you prod me with sharp sticks and make me jump off the fence, <laughs> and I know, I know you're going to, um, so I'll jump before I get sticked. Um, I, I, I'll, uh, I'll probably say about 70%. 70% chance of survival. And, and, and thriving. I think you know, it's, it's binary. We either, wow. we're, yeah. we're either toast or we're yeah. in a very good place. Yeah. So on the one hand, we either go extinct or we survive and prosper and thrive. Yeah. I mean, this sounds terribly naive, but I really do think it's a choice between extinction and virtual godhood. Mm -hmm. That sounds terribly naive. Yeah, well, I kind of see it like that too, in, in most ways, honestly. But my timeline is also within kind of more specific within this century and, and, and the fact that it's actually this kind of dichotomy or, or diverging paths. And, and I, I can't say which path we are along right now, but those are the, the, <laughs> the possibilities in front of us, I think. So, so let me, let me um, people are starting to do this to you, Nicolai, so a trend has been started. So <laughs> let, me, let me turn the stick around on you. Uh, you've asked a lot of people that question. What's your number? Uh, it's so... Uh, <laughs> as they say in Bulgaria, with your own stones on your own head. <laughs> so I deserve it, definitely. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, uh to tell you the truth, I'd be under the 50% range for sure. I, I'd be in the probably 25 to 
to forty percent range of survival. Uh, I've got a suggestion for you. Sure. I think you should pretend to be over fifty percent. We don't want everybody to get you know really scared and give up. <laughs> well, look, I mean, most things that I've accomplished in my life were in the lower percentile probability, um, and 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 yet they are they after a certain point in life they materialized and they became facts. So you know, the mere fact that something is lower probability, and that actually connects with your previous point about hope, right? So, uh, it, and it goes to another point, which I think uh, Carlos Castaneda makes about what is the will. The will is this which makes you fight a battle, which under all reasonable estimates, you ought to lose, mm. right? So yeah, maybe I'm going to give us a maybe 20, 25% of chances of success and survival. Does that mean we ought to give up? No, I think we ought to fight even with more determination. And, 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 and you know, whatever it may end up being, let it be. <laughs> yeah. So, so I personally, and yes, there are some people who would say, oh, if the chance is less than 50%, I'd give up. I am not, I don't count myself within that kind of camp. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you... in my opinion, if a fight's worth fighting, even if you have low probability of success, you ought to fight it anyway. So, so you're like England going into a, a football match against Brazil. You, 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 <laughs> you know you're going to lose, but you're going to give it a good shot. Sure, sure. Yeah, I'm not too big on soccer or or football, but but yeah, that that may be a good example. Yeah. The the other thing that I think um, we need to be careful about, other than being uh, afflicted by despair is being too certain. I find it fascinating how many people um, on, on the blogs that, that, that I'm sure, you know, and the, the forums that you and I both look at, uh, they, they've taken sides already. They've decided definitely AI is not coming in the next N years, or definitely it is, or definitely it's going to be a disaster, or definitely it's going to be wonderful. And, and this seems crazy to me. You know, we just don't know. Nobody knows. We, none of us have crystal balls. Um, we need to remain open. And Humans are very good, uh, particularly on mass, at leaping to one position and then only seeking out the bits of information which support that position. Yeah, confirmation bias. Confirmation bias, particularly about uh, things where science is involved, which, which where it ought to happen less than anywhere else. Um, it seems to be easier to change somebody's opinion about whether they like Breaking Bad or not than uh, whether they think GM, GMOs are a good thing or not, even though the data is, is more available. It's because the science is conducted by people, and that, that's actually one reason why I stepped out of academia, is, is the ego, the, the, the sort of the, the personal, the personality struggle, right? So it's not only about what's right and what's wrong, it's about whether I said it or not. And if I said it, it's right, and therefore, it ought to be done. And if I didn't say it, it's probably wrong. And, and, it, it, and once you get to a certain sort of position of influence, you have a very strong, you have a lot to lose. So people would go to great extent to kind of defend their positions, even in, in a sort of a growing body of evidence, they may be wrong. Yeah, no, that, that's absolutely right. Um, I recently read Solaris, uh, the novel by Stanislaw Lem, um, for my science fiction book group. And there's a long passage in that, which is a parody of academia. And I couldn't understand why anybody would want to parody academia. It's a parody of itself already. <laughs> well, let, let's get back to the topic here and, and talk a little bit more about, okay, so let's focus on the survival and prosperity end of things. One proposed path is focusing on the creation of what people have called friendly AI. What's the possibility of this? Okay, I don't know, and I don't even know the routes that uh, currently look most, most fruitful, because to, to be honest with you, I don't understand a lot of the work that's going on in the space. Um, you know, you, you're very familiar with the Machine Institute, Machine Intelligence Research Institute, which used, which used to be uh, the Singularity Institute. Um, that is populated by formidably bright mathematicians, uh, and I can't, I can't follow what they do. I'm just absolutely delighted that they're doing it. Um, there are all sorts of other approaches going on, uh, but I think it's very early days, really. 
frankly, I think right now we need to uh, pursue all possible routes, whether they be programming routes, mathematical routes, ethical routes. Uh, I, think, I think we need to throw as much resource at it as we can get. It's, a, it's an unfair comparison, and I got told off by a fairly senior AI researcher for, for parroting it recently, but, but uh, Boston has said something like, there's probably 100,000 people working full-time on things which could lead to artificial general intelligence, and there's probably six people working full-time on making it safe. Now, you know, that, that was, that's a bit out of date, and so you know, maybe it's 60 now. Maybe it's even 600, but uh, I doubt it. But um, the, the, there's certainly an imbalance, and we, we need to, we need but, to rectify that But balance. the counter-argument to that point would be what Marvin Minsky and Noam Chomsky have said during their interviews with me, which is all those 100,000 people, they're not working on AGI. They're working on very narrow AI. And both of those people, uh, that is to say Chomsky and Minsky, refuse to say that there's been any notable progress with respect to artificial general intelligence. And all the progress is in narrow, very specific fields of it. So. Uh, actually, uh, Minsky said that he doesn't think there's many people who are working on on AGI at all. No, I was very careful to say uh, working on projects which could contribute to AGI. No, I, I mean, both of those guys seem to me to have a bit of a chip on their shoulder. Um, it, it's, a, it's a bit like saying to the Wright brothers the day before uh, they, they, they successfully made their maiden flight, we've made no progress towards flying because we haven't flown yet. And then the next day they, they fly. Um, you know, it, it's a bit unfair. Um, I've even heard people say, and you've heard people say, that we've made no progress in AI since 1956 when it kind of got started, which is just ridiculous. You know, there's, there's massive progress been made in AI, and it's benefited all of us hugely. Um, the fact that you know we're all in touch with each other thanks to these wonderful little devices is is an utter revolution um, in in our lives. And people say, you know, where's my jetpack? Well, okay, so I haven't got a jetpack, but I've got access to the world's knowledge here. That's much better. So, um, you know, there, there, is, there is some nonsense talked about lack of progress in AI. With regard to how many people really are working on AGI, um, I don't know. But there's, there's a reasonable number working on something which is, is clearly heading in that direction. You know, the Google brain. Google is quite, Page and Brin are quite unashamed. They want to build a brain. And Google Brain employs a lot of people. There's a lot of people working on improving that, that thing, um, a cluster of things. And there are similar ones in, in Facebook and Amazon and so on. Uh, there's for sure this one, one or more in the NSA and in our dear country's GCHQ. Um, there's a lot of people working on those sorts of projects, but also um, people working on deep learning. I mean, the work that Demesis Harvis is doing is quite likely not certain, but quite likely to be a module of what ends up as the AGI if and when it arrives. So there's a lot, lot of people working on projects which will contribute to it. Actually, going back to the point of friendly AI, I just kind of recalled that one of the people I interviewed on kind of the similar topic was uh, Professor St St or uh, Dr. Steve Omohundro, who has a, this kind of very interesting, provably safe mathematical systems approach or what he calls AI scaffolding, within which uh, he believes you can actually create uh, provably safe artificial general intelligence. And of course, we have what you call in the book the Oracle AI approach, uh, or what uh, Roman Yampolsky has called uh, sandboxing the AI, uh, and, and all those things. So. There are a number of proposed approaches that, that may be kind of very useful uh, towards the path of, of developing artificial general intelligence. Now, my concern is I'm not sure that many or most people would even be embracing those other than the people who are proposing them. So, so for example, if you are working for DARPA or even for Google, you know, I think the primary directive you'd be getting in the development of artificial general intelligence would be its effectiveness and usefulness towards the goals you're setting up for it. So if you're Google, you're probably going to be asking it to do search, to, to connect all the dots and kind of to predict, uh, or as they say, to know what you would want to know before you even know you want to know it. 
right? So that's what Google would want to do. And, and therefore, that would be kind of their prime directive. If you're talking about DARPA, then obviously their directive would be rather different. So uh, all those kind of sandbox ideas, the Oracle idea and all the other ones may be secondary, aren't they? Uh, At best. Yeah, no, I think the, the people who wield great resources like Page and Bryn, um, you know, they're not cartoon villains. I, I, might, I have no um, privileged knowledge of them whatsoever, but, but my distinct impression is that they're guys who are fantastically excited about how wonderful the world can be in the future. And they, you know, they, they want it to hurry up. They want to uh, make the future happen quicker. Um, and, and they're not in the least interested in creating a Terminator. You know? So uh, I think they take very seriously the things that, that Hawking, Musk, and you know, at the root of it all, Bostrom have been saying. But what about the DARPA guys? Maybe these two fellows in Google do, but do you think that applies to the DARPA guys or to the Israeli military or, I don't know, to the Iranian military or North Korea even? Yeah, well, the same again. I have no privilege. privilege. Chinese, Chinese military? Yeah, I have no privileged knowledge of any of these people, but I think that they're just the same as us. You know, there are good and bad guys in those organizations just as there are anywhere else. Maybe their incentives are weighted a bit differently, but I don't think anybody... Well, very few people are going to be actively interested in creating something that will destroy themselves and all of their uh, friends and family. So I think particularly as it becomes clearer, if, if and when it becomes clearer that AGI really is coming fairly soon, um, I think the resources thrown at solving the control or motivation problems will become greater. And it, they, will, they will build on the work that's being done now. So, you know, you'll have, you'll have a, a, a slow build-up at first, and then maybe it'll be an exponential increase in the work, in, in the resources being applied to FAI. But the, the quicker the message gets out there that we need to be doing this, then the, the, we can tilt that graph up. And if you tilt that graph up a little bit, and you get to the, well, you know, in exponential curves, you're always at the knee, but never, nevertheless, from, from our perspective, if you, if you bring the knee a bit closer, you make a massive difference. So, you know, this conversation, uh, this, this conversation being had by people around the world is vitally important. And, and, and the thing that's really vitally important about it is that it be, remains or remains or becomes a nuanced conversation. Um, we, we mustn't have it uh, becoming a strident shouting match between those who've already decided that we're doomed and those who've already decided that uh, we're, we're heading towards glory and the others who think we're all nuts. Mm. <laughs> uh, by the way, for that kind of resource mobilization, what's needed is, as Ben Gertzel says, a Sputnik moment, something which would be kind of very visible out there and which would motivate and galvanize support and resources towards that goal. Yeah, yeah, but you know, it's funny. Um, I'm, sure, I'm sure he's right, but you know, how many Sputniks do we need? You know, to me, this is, this is a Sputnik moment, the arrival of this thing. Um, but that one is kind of low, uh, kind of under the... We don't really realize how profound the impact is that because it's kind of under the subtext. It's not really visible there. Technology has, you know, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, but it's, I would stop it indistinguishable. Like, good design and good technology disappear, so we stop being aware of it. Right, we need something that would be visible, be aware. We're not always visible of that technology around us. Yeah, we 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 get accustomed to things far too easily. We're we're, we're a very adaptable little species. Um, we're 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 like the famous frog in a in a pot of boiling water. You know, if you throw a a frog into a pot of water that's already boiling, it will either die or jump out. Uh, if you sit a frog in a in a pan of cold water and gradually heat it up, apparently it will just let itself boil to death because it doesn't notice it's happening. And, you know, maybe we're like that. Um, maybe there will be a Sputnik moment like self-driving cars will will really do it. Or maybe when uh, the domestic robots that we have looking after our elder citizens or indeed ourselves um, start having conversations with us, which are almost human-like. Maybe that will be our Sputnik moment. I don't know. I think maybe we will... Um, I think we're probably capable of, of kind of acclimatizing to all of those things without seeing them as a huge disjunction, particularly because, because of Moore's law, they're going to accelerate. So we're going to be having to deal with them quicker and quicker and quicker. Um, but I think, you know, I think it, it is happening. More and more people are taking this seriously. As I say, you know, since Bostrom's book came out particularly, uh, the mainstream media 
now talks about this stuff without sneering. Admittedly, the sub-editors seem to have a law that they all obey, that there has to be a picture of Terminator um, at, the, at the header of each of these articles when they write about AI. Um, and hopefully that law will be superseded. But um, the, the conversation's starting, and I, I just think we should accelerate it, and I think we should keep it open. Um, so, so people shouldn't make up their minds too firmly about which way we're heading, which, you know, and, and the other guys are all loonies. I think uh, people like Stephen Hawking and Elon Musk lending credibility and or money towards that cause also helps a lot for the public perception. Uh, let me ask you for the other alternative for conflict and disaster though, and that's the sort of in, in, inner human conflict, humans against humans, that's to say what Hugo de Guerres has called the artilect war, pro-AI and anti-AI, people who basically destroy our planet in, with you know, as a result of that conflict. Yeah, yeah, no, he, uh, Hugo's a great guy. Um, he, he's written some fascinating stuff. Um, his, his war of cosmi cosmists versus Terrans. I, I think, really, if there ever was such a war, um, the cosmists, the people who were prepared to carry on using AI, would win because they just have formidable technological advantage. Um, the... the, the the strife that I worry more about is, um, is where people get hold of the idea that AI uh, is being created by scientists who aren't, aren't paying due attention to the risks and that therefore these are bad people and they need to be stopped. Uh, and, you know, some, some very nasty outcomes could happen as a result of that. In fact, you know, as you know, um, that, that's, that's, a, that's a trope used in my book. I think that's a serious issue and that's why... I've had debates with people uh, about whether, pe whether we should be talking openly about this even. It's quite interesting. Some people say, look, um, Elon Musk hasn't done us any favors by raising the profile of the possibility of unfriendly AGI. Uh, because all that does is, is people get journalists who are short on time. They're not bad people, but they're short on time. They reach for the easy soundbite, and the easy soundbite is the Terminator analogy. Uh, people are very busy and they don't want to pay attention to everything, so they grab onto the simplest version of the idea, and the simplest version of the idea is the Terminator version of it. And so all Elon has done is to, you know, is to spread this meme that AI is bad and we ought to stop it. And that's certainly what, not what he meant to do, uh, and it's not the right thing to do. Uh, it's not even possible. You can't stop AI development. It will happen somewhere. Uh, and as, as computing power becomes more and more powerful, what Somebody, somebody um, calculated recently that what Google has now, what Google Brain, you know, the entire Google ecosystem is now, we all have on our desktops in 20 years' time. So um, even if you know, somehow you, you managed to have a Turing police which stopped all AI research today, in 20 years' time, a kid will be able to do it in his bedroom. So um, you, know, you can't stop it. Um, but AI has already produced fantastic advantages for us, and it will continue to get better. Uh, and the positive possibilities are enormous, and we should focus on that and focus on making sure that happens. Um, I don't believe that hiding the conversation or just kind of neglecting to have it somehow is helpful, because then I think there's the danger that uh, a, a broader public later becomes aware of what's been going on and they feel that it's been hidden for them. And then there'd be a horrible backlash. I fear that backlash. You kind of touched on this a little bit, but let me be a little bit more explicit by asking here uh, David Wood's question, who is basically, is there a case for distinctions of AGI going wrong to be held behind closed doors to avoid scaring the public? Yeah, that's a great question, and, and uh, I'm not surprised. David's a great guy. Um, you should interview him. Um, well, yeah, this is, ex this is exactly what we're saying. I think uh, I can understand the argument. I can really understand it. If you, um, if you believe, as a lot of people do, that strong AI is, is inevitable and that it will be solved because it's a normal engineering problem and we solve normal engineering problems as we develop products, then getting the, getting the layperson interested in the subject too early is dangerous and, and you know, hazardous. I understand that argument. Uh, I don't agree with it because I think that solving the problem requires a massive, amount, a massive injection of resources which are to some extent external to the, 
to the core engineering problem. Um, and also, I'm, I'm fearful of a bigger backlash if people later fear that they've been, um, if, if, things, if they later fear that things have been kept secret for them. I see. Because to me, from my point of view, I think the debate is there. If you look for it, I am not aware, you know, after doing this for five years, I'm not aware of any topics, of course, that's like, I don't know what I don't know. But I think that in, in the last five or six years, I have seen and covered most points that I can think of and most scenarios that I can think of, both pro and con with respect to artificial general intelligence. So I don't think it's really possible to kind of hold that debate behind whole, uh, closed doors because it's already out there. Now, it's true it's not in the mainstream quite yet, but I think anyone interested in the topic can go not only to my podcast, but to infinitely you know, available and, and more and more available resources on the topic and can read and educate themselves on, on any kind of possibility and opinion on that. So I think the genie is already out of the bot the bottle and we can't put it back yeah no it's all out, it's already out of the bottle but maybe the genie is lying in a pool in the kitchen and the worry that some people have is you know what a uh, a, a successful mo movie or novel might do is to scoop up the genie and spread it throughout the house and they don't want that to happen you know i had i've had a couple of people say to me like your book is really really good but i'm not going to promote it because I think you're spreading, you know, you could be one of the really? routes, one of the routes through which this, this, uh, this meme gets spread more widely than it is productive for it to be spread. Huh. That, that's, that's something new to me. I, I haven't come across that kind of... Well, I, and I understand it. You know, if you're... I'm not saying these people are necessarily AI researchers, but if you are an AI researcher, particularly if you're a prominent AI researcher, you do not really want people writing about you with a caption of the Terminator at the head of the article. I, I get that. I do get that. Hmm. Interesting. So let me, let me ask you this. What will the average person then get by reading your book? What's the goal? What do you want to communicate? Hmm. Um, well, first and foremost, I hope they get some fun. Um, you know, I, I worked very hard to... Check on that. I, I did get a lot of fun reading it. Great. I'm, I'm, I'm pleased. Um, secondly, I think that during, over the course of it, they'll get a pretty reasonable introduction to most of the major issues, most of the major uh, neuroscience and philosophical issues that, that, that AI and strong AI, AGI, sorry, AI and strong AI raise. Uh, they will be fluent with a lot of the, a lot of the debate. So it's, it's a way of getting up to speed with where we are today. Yeah, I actually would say that it's one of the definitely more philosophically sophisticated uh, uh, science fiction novels that I have read recently because you kind of give a more fuller perspective of the full spectrum of opinion and, and, and possibilities, which is very nice and useful, kind of an easy way to introduce the topic to someone who may be a complete beginner. Um, so, huh, so you have come across that, that resistance from those people. That's, that's interesting, though. That's interesting. Uh, so what, let me ask you this. What's next for Callum Chase, then? Uh, good question. So I, I have written the first draft of the sequel, um, and there are some interesting surprises for people who read the first one. Uh, where things end up, I think a lot of people will probably guess that's not the end. Um, so it takes... It, takes, uh, it extends the journey very considerably. One thing I learned, uh, and it, I learned it too late <laughs> in writing a novel, is that the first draft is what you call the shit draft. You don't show it, you don't show it to anybody. Uh, now, so I've got the first draft of the sequel, and it isn't very good. Uh, it needs a lot of work on it. Uh, the first novel went through eight drafts before it was uh, publishable. Um, so that, that first draft exists. I've, I've set it to, to one side to let it... Um, uh, to let it mature a bit, and I'll go back to it. Um, I'm currently working on a, um, a sort of not a non-fiction uh, primer on AI, both the sort of near-term problem of automation and, you know, are we all going to lose our jobs and do we need basic income and all that kind of thing, uh, and then the longer-term issue of, you know, can we survive AGI. Um, there's, there's various uh, people have had a go at it, and I'm, I'm going to contribute my... Something take me worth to that. 
let me stop you on that for a second then, because that's an issue that I often like to bring and discuss, which is to say technological unemployment. I think it's a very important issue. So give us the, the sort of the quick and dirty scoop, if we can, on, on your view. How, how do you see that? Yeah, uh, well, it's, it's a vital question, an important question, and I'm afraid you're not going to get me off the fence on this one. Um, there is no doubt that uh, automation will, will uh, overtake or destroy an awful lot of jobs, and it will overtake white-collar jobs, uh, as, you know, as well as all the blue-collar jobs that it already has and will increasingly do. I think many of them will take a bit longer than people think. I mean, for instance, self-driving cars, people say, well, that will... That will um, remove the jobs of taxi drivers, lorry drivers, van drivers at a stroke. I don't think that. I think that for a long time, there's going to need to be a human in, a, in each taxi, in each lorry, in each van to deal with the unexpected events which just happen. Life, life in the real world isn't, isn't like it is in the theoretical world and um, things break down, surprising things happen. And also loading and unloading, helping people navigate around the vehicle uh, I think there'll be need to pe need to be people in those vehicles for a long time, and 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 the an example why that might be true is is airplanes, which because they're much more expensive, have been flown by wire, they've been flown by automation for for decades, and yet we still have we still have pilots. Um, so I think some of the things will be slower, but they're coming. There's no doubt we're co they're coming. The debate is whether humans will be able to sort of scamper up the value chain as the computers the net are coming. Effect. Yeah. Whether they are, you know, quicker than they scamper up after us. Um, my hunch is yes. My hunch is that in 50 years' time, my daughter will be doing a job that I couldn't possibly imagine. Certainly couldn't give it a name. You know, who would have imagined that 50 years ago? That in fact, nobody. I can say certainly nobody would have imagined that there would be people doing jobs uh, with, with job titles as sort of web experience manager. You know, that, that's. That's completely new. So maybe there'll be dream wranglers. Search engine optimizer or whatever. You say that to somebody who started work at the same time as I started work and they wouldn't know what you're talking about. Um, so I, I, my hunch is that we will find those things. But then there's a subsidiary question of whether we'll be able to retrain ourselves quick enough to do that scampering up the value chain. Uh, maybe MOOCs and another aspect of disruptive technology, uh, the, the online education revolution of MOOCs, massive open online courses, maybe they, maybe they have a role to play in that. Um, or maybe we won't be able to scamper up the value chain for long because the computers will just get good at, as good at us, as good as us at almost everything that's worth doing, certainly everything that's worth being paid for. In, in which case we have to somehow introduce a universal basic income and actually probably a very generous universal basic income. But of course, to get from here, where we have a basic welfare state, to there where all of your reasonable expectations as a citizen are met without you having to work, uh, that, that's going to be a, a very difficult transition. And so once again, the, the, the sooner we start thinking about these things, the better. Um, but as to you know, which of those outcomes is going to be, I'm afraid we don't yet know. And there are plenty of people saying we already do know, either that it's, you know, total automation of everything and we have to have universal basic income, or that um, it, there's an interesting debate, I think, between Mark Andreessen and Vinod Kostler, isn't there? Mark Andreessen says software is eating the world, but humans will always keep ahead of it. And Vinod Kostler says, no, I think, you know, computers are going to take away a lot of our jobs and they're not coming back. Uh, I saw a presentation by a lady uh, who, yeah, she's on the faculty of the Singularity University. Uh, and I was very impressed to see her because she was the woman who drew the charts in, in Ray Kurzweil's book. That very famous chart of the, of the exponential curve, of the, the exponential growth of technology, um, which, which has been reproduced probably more than any other chart in human history, um, she, she wrote that. And she concluded um, there's a lot of data, but we can't yet know the answer as to whether you know, we will still have jobs in 50 years or not. Um, but it seems to me that... Even if all jobs disappear, it is possible to get to a world of universal basic income. So that one worries me less. There's going to be a lot of disruption and a lot of pain and a lot of debate to get there. But that one uh, is a big issue, but I don't think it's, it's insuperable. The AGI one is the real mother. Mm -hmm. And you see, I have to say I'm a little bit more worried about technological unemployment because as far as that phenomenon is concerned, I am already in the camp that I don't see it creating more jobs than it's taking away. I don't see us being able to keep up. 
Uh, and, and in my view, um, I'm really, really worried about it to the point that it can create so much conflict. So forget about humans fighting over AI being pro-camp and anti-AI camp. Humans can destroy ourselves just because of the sort of the polarization and the, the or the extreme polarization that could kind of be the result of uh, technological unemployment. Because yes, there will be some very few of us who will be able to adapt extremely well and would be trillionaires. But I'm afraid the majority of us, the way I see it right now, is unlikely to adapt, uh, especially at the mid and high level end of things. Even in Canada, uh, the last maybe 10 years, most jobs First of all, we're lagging in terms of job creation, but most jobs are in the service and low-end paying industries to to begin with, uh, very seasonal work and all that kind of stuff. So I unfortunately am in, very concerned about technological unemployment. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an important issue and it could go very badly wrong. Um, I think the, the fear of the hollowing out of the middle classes is overdone. You know, I think it's easy to forget that we've just had, uh, we're still emerging from, um, the worst recession since the Great Depression. And actually, you know, we're not in too bad shape. Life is pretty tough for a lot of people, but overall, Western societies are doing pretty well. Um, and at the same time, Southeast Asia has is, improved the welfare of its people enormously. Um, I am perhaps too optimistic, but I see uh, the, the, the combination of capitalism and enlightenment leading to, leading to the scientific method that combination has improved the standard of living, the prospects for people incredibly over the last couple of hundred years. And I think it's a, it's, it's a continuous work in progress. It's not perfect, um, but it's better than any other system we've come across. And it's doing a pretty good job and will continue to do it. Um, in you know, the, the con canonical example of, of farming, where in 1900, 50% of Americans worked on farms, and now it's 2%. And that's largely due to the mechanization of, of, of farms might sound like very bad news for horses, uh, but actually I'd rather be one of a smaller number of horses wandering around in a, in a farm and being ridden every now and then than, than hauling uh, coal carts around in mines. Um, and as for the people, I think they're probably, you know, probably having a much better life than they were eking out a subsistence living on farming. Um, maybe this time it's different. I, I understand, you know, it's faster um, and the different types of jobs are being automated. But it seems to me a reasonable hypothesis that what we've done before to adapt and to, to take on new jobs and more higher value added jobs, we can do it again. Yeah, what, what worries me, and that's a whole other episode here, that, that topic, which maybe we should consider doing. But what worries me is that I don't see that the young people are able to adapt and kind of in, get incorporated into that new world. And they're the future and they're the ones who are theoretically at least the most adaptive. So we have countries like Spain with 50% youth unemployment. Even in Canada, the vast majority of people, uh, you know, even with uni university degrees and advanced degrees who are either unemployed or, or getting employed at, at sort of the, the very bottom uh, of the pyramid. And all those higher paid jobs, they're usually in sort of the middle age and the baby boom generation. Uh, and they may be going extinct with those people as they retire. So I, I don't see the replenishment happening at a large enough scale to provide for our population growth and, and to sustain the future economy. So it really, really worries me. And, and when you combine that with the fact that Toronto's real estate market is absolutely exploding. So the average house in Toronto now is like eight hundred or $900,000. And last night I was watching on the news, a family earning $120,000 a year is not sure if they can afford even a tiny small house in the suburbs of Toronto, right? And and by the way, most young people I know of, they, they don't make anywhere near to $100,000, not even $40,000. Yeah. So so that's the things that really, really worry me. And yeah. Well, I think, I think you have to bear in mind that the youngsters now, um, you've got to feel sorry for them. They're emerging into the job market at the, at the rough end of you know, the longest recession we've had this century or the last, the last hundred years and the worst recession we've had since the Great Depression. So it's bound to be tough. Uh, in places like Spain, they've got the added problem that the, their economy has been warped by the, the euro and the EU has been a, 
an experiment which in some ways hasn't worked. So, um, you know, that, it, that makes it really tough. And, you know, I live half the time in London. You don't have to tell me about crazy house prices. But you know what? That isn't about the economy. That's because we haven't built enough houses. Uh, I don't know about Toronto, but in London, which is, you know, famously house prices, house, houses in London now are not places to live in their, their, their investment chips for, for wealthy Russian oligarchs. Um, but the, the, the problem is we've, we've got a million new inhabitants in London and we've been building something like 30,000 new homes a year. It's ridiculous. You know, obviously, the, the law of supply and demand is going to mean that the prices go through the roof. And that isn't because of automation and it isn't because of, of uh, economic collapse. It's just a, a structural issue with that particular market. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, on the upside, the reason why I started blogging is because after graduating from my master's degree at the peak of the recession in 2008, 2009, and after sending almost, I think I stopped counting at two or 300 resumes and and I got one interview, which apparently didn't go very well because they never called me back. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the upside of that is that that kind of failure to find a job for myself led me to start this blog and, and this podcast eventually. So and, and now I absolutely love what I'm doing. So and, and a lot of a lot of other people love it, too, Nicola. You, you've developed a, a resource, which is really fantastic. Well, thank you. But but I so I, I'm hoping that all of us the, 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 or the new generation who are facing the same problem that I was facing would come up with equal or hopefully a lot better solution to that problem, personally speaking, and hopefully would be able to generate value for others, as as you say, that I have managed to do. So I hope that you're right uh, in, in the end of the day. But, uh, Callum, we've been talking here for for considerably longer than an hour, so I think it's unfortunately time to end our conversation. So let me ask you, what's the best place for people to find more about you and your work? Amazon. Uh, Amazon, wherever you are, uh, Pandora's brain. Uh, that's, that's the first and best place to start. And as you mentioned earlier, I also have a blog, which is pandorasbrain.com. Uh, it's uh, no apostrophe and a hyphen between Pandora and brain, pandorasbrain.com. Um, yeah, those are the best places. Now, today we've had a long conversation which covered a variety of topics, uh, some of which were kind of surprising a little bit. What's the final message that you want to send out? What's, what's the best way to wrap this up? Yeah, now I've seen some of your podcasts before, so I've been um, wondering about this one. Uh, and I, can't, I haven't been able to come up with a very a terribly succinct one because it's, it, what I want to say is, that people should be nuanced and complex, and unfortunately the message is nuanced and complex, but it's this, it's that um, I think all of us who are interested in this subject should be trying to get more and more people interested in the subject, but we should be trying to get them to do it in a sophisticated way, not one that leads them to think, oh crikey, AI is disastrous, stop it. Um, you know, it, 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 we, we need to get across the idea that AI is coming and that it could be the best thing or the worst thing that has ever happened to us. Um, it can't be stopped. We have to try to influence it to be the best thing. Um, so we need a nuanced, complicated conversation. And that's, that's what I think we can all do most usefully. Well, Callum, thank you very much for spending that much time today with us. It was a lot of fun to have you on my show. You're very welcome. It was great fun. Yeah.